0: Welcome to The Important Part, investing with Liz Young. I'm Liz Young, head of investment strategy at SoFi, here to help cut through the large amount of information out there about investing and get to the important part. With the help of my guests, you'll gain valuable insights, new perspectives, and the knowledge to confidently make your investment decisions. Welcome back to The Important Part, everybody. I have a unique episode for you today on charitable gifting, and the man who's going to tell us about that is John Merrick. John Merrick is the secretary and treasurer on the board of directors for Meals on Wheels America, the leadership organization supporting the 5,000-plus community-based programs across the country that are dedicated to addressing senior hunger and isolation. He also is on the board of Consumer Cellular, a company he co-founded and led as CEO for 25 years. With that, let's get to the interview. John Merrick, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of The Important Part. We are right at the the cusp of tax deadlines. So we're recording this about a month out. By the time everybody is listening to this will only be a couple weeks out. So I think this is a great topic to be talking about, which is partially about charitable gifting. But the other part of it that I wanted to start with that I think as I was looking through your history and your experience, I think not only myself being interested in this, but our audience would be very interested in this. You started... Consumer Cellular in 1995. And then you were at the helm as CEO of Consumer Cellular for 25 years, which means that you led basically a tech company through the tech bust of the early 2000s. Then you led it through the Great Recession, which wasn't tech-centric, but it was economically centric. You led it through that, 2008, 2009. And then you led it through all of 2020, which, as we all know and remember very sorely, was the beginning of the pandemic-driven recession. So first of all, let's talk about leading a company through crisis And what you've learned from that, if you can sum it up, I'm sure you learned a lot, especially those three in particular, because they were all so different from each other. And then the last thing that maybe I'm more interested in is, does your spidey sense tell you that there is a crisis a-brewing right now?
1: Sure. Well, happy to be here, Liz. I'm excited to talk. Consumer cellular, you're right. For 25 years, we went through a lot of kind of ups and downs in terms of the economy. I think the, you know, the one thing that that we always took away and that that I learned in that process is it's not all losers, right? There's always some people that are going to thrive and be able to come out ahead. And consumer cellular was, we were focused on the senior population and uh, really focused on affordability. So when you think about things like recessions, when suddenly people are trying to find ways to reduce their costs, it actually kind of benefited us. People were suddenly willing to take a look at more closely their cellular phone bills and if there were maybe smaller, less known companies that could save them money. And so, you know, we really kind of doubled down during those hard times in terms of increasing our marketing spend, making sure our our message was really, you know, honed in and that people understood the value in switching to our service and, and actually, you know, survived and did really well during those times. In terms of looking ahead... I think you're right. Uh, the, the writing seems to be on the wall. It seems like there's going to be some tough times ahead here for the, the next short little bit. But again, I think just like in the past, there's going to be companies that can really take advantage of this and, and position themselves to come out ahead.
0: So as you're answering that, I actually have another question popped into my head about just basically cellular in general. So today we talk about cell phones and, you know, mobile devices. I'm probably dating myself by calling it a cell phone. Mobile devices or these, these little tiny computers that we have in our hands, we can't live without them. So when we think about recession proofing, and when I talk about it from an economic standpoint, I often talk about consumer behavior as one of the big drivers and one of the things that changes through a recession and what are the different ways it changes and how does that affect corporate America. So the way that we talk about a mobile device today is that if a consumer starts to see stress in their own personal balance sheet, they have to make choices about what they're going to pay, right? They have obligations that they have to pay for. They have some obligations that are discretionary, meaning the ones that they choose, I'll call those wants instead of needs. And then they have obligations that they absolutely need to pay. You know, you want to pay the electric bill, you want to pay your mortgage keep a roof over your head, right? There's a sort of a hierarchy of needs on that payment list. Today, our mobile devices fall at the top of that hierarchy of needs, right? Like people will pay their cell that. phone bill before they'll pay much else because they can't imagine not having their cell phone. Back in the late nineties, early two thousands, I'm assuming that that was not the case. It was a discretionary item. So, talk to me about managing. I guess managing your competitive environment, or, or manage how do you how do you retain customers through that, and how much harder was it then in a crisis versus how it probably wasn't quite as hard in 2020.
1: Sure, absolutely. You're right. The the big difference is, you know, how much has the industry changed in terms of it becoming a, you know, almost a commodity and a necessity for everybody, right? And when you go back to our early days 25 years ago, that wasn't the case, but I think that what was different, we were really focused at that point on safety and convenience people aren't going to remember these days very much, but, you know, a lot of folks had a cellular phone that was just in the glove box and you hoped you never had to use it, but it was there for an emergency, right?
0: My mom had one of those. Yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) And (laughs) I think what was unique about that in terms of, you know, how do you compete in those situations? You know, when suddenly people are trying to find ways to cut costs is to find the niche that still has the disposable income that values those benefits enough to, to warrant paying for them. Right. So back in our early days, when not everybody felt like they had to have a side of their phone, there were certainly still some people that, that felt like it was an important part of their lives just for that safety and convenience. And so making sure that we could kind of focus on that niche and find the people that still could have still had the money to afford it, could pay for the service and, and keep it.
0: Yeah. So it was targeted. I my first yeah. cell phone I got as a I think I was a sophomore in college and my parents didn't want me to get one. So I went to the mall and I did it myself and I I was defiant about it. And I my bill was supposed to be like $40 a month. And I thought I can handle this. And it didn't do much aside from make calls and texting was cumbersome. And then I went on spring break that year. I don't even know why I'm telling this story, but it's now it's come to my mind. And here we are in the middle of it. I went on spring break that year and that was back when you didn't have national plans. You had a local plan and that's it. So I was on roaming the whole time. Well, I was like, I don't know what that means. (laughs) It means that when you get home from spring break, you have a $400 cell phone bill that you can't pay when you're 19 years old. So that, hence mom and dad's disappointment in me (laughs) at the time because they had to pay said bill. Anyway, I digress. (laughs) So One of the things I I wanted to talk about, we're going to shift into kind of the charitable piece of this, and you know, as I said before, it's tax season, so this is something that investors have to keep in mind, and and we're taking a unique approach on this episode because charitable gifting isn't something that you necessarily invest in, right? You don't you don't give your money to a charity and expect them to give you more in return, but it is a way to manage your overall financial well being if you choose to do it that way. But when you were at Consumer Cellular, from what I understand, you made it a priority for the company to encourage and engage charitable efforts. So here's what I want to know, because as the CEO, you obviously did that for a reason. I'm I'm guessing part of it was that you had a personal passion for it. But the other part is that you must have believed that there were some benefits to the company, of encouraging that, whether those benefits be morale, connection to the community, recruiting. You tell me, but what did you see as the biggest benefits for encouraging charitable activities at a for-profit corporation?
1: Sure. Well, I think you just kind of answered the question for me right there. You're right. We did all the little things, you know, the blood drives and volunteer at the food bank and all those things. But I think the thing that really became important to us as an organization was the way we celebrated major milestones when we hit a certain number of customers or an anniversary was to give back and in generally we would ask our employees and our customers to help us decide you know where that money should go to and then make significant contributions and we would also give you know employee bonuses and all those things but what we heard both from our customers and our employees was being a part of an organization that felt it was important to give back particularly the things that they also were engaged with was way more important than the individual bonus that they got but it was you know kind of being a part of that That movement, the commitment to not only providing a great service and and a good value, but also to being a part of our our communities. And so, you know, when we were trying to retain employees or attract customers, being able to talk about those charitable contributions were an important part of the message that we had.
0: And did you find that it brought more partnerships with other brands? And I'm asking that because sort of through the lens of what we talk about today in the investing landscape, which is ESG, right? So environmental, social, and governance, this would fall, in my opinion, more into the social side of things. And generations that are younger tend to want to put their money and their time into companies, for-profit companies that make them feel good about that. So if this is something that, you know, other corporations either continue to up-level themselves in? Or if we see it, th- this is a way to focus on that S part of the ESG. So what are some of the quantifiable ways that you saw it have an effect?
1: The consumer side, a lot of it was more anecdotal. We didn't do a lot of de- detailed surveys and, and trying to measure things specifically. We certainly got feedback from people and and we could tell, you know, based on just what people were talking about, that it was important. But I do think that you're right. A lot of companies, especially the cause marketing activities that people will do, where they'll actually partner with the charity. One of the groups that we worked with and that I work with personally is Meals on Wheels. And, And I think Subaru of America is a great example with their Share the Love event that they do every December, where if you buy a Subaru, they'll donate money to one of several charities. And Meals on Wheels has been one of those organizations for 15 years. And for those organizations, they're able to really see the benefit of that cause marketing effect where, you know, where they're letting customers kind of, you know, with their feet and their wallets say, you know, Hey, I'm going to support you because you're supporting this effort. So what we didn't measure super closely at consumer cellular, there's, there's a lot of great examples of people that do. And I think that it's really clear that that can pay off really well.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned meals on wheels, you've made I won't call it your retirement life. Is this your retirement life? Or this is just your, your post-consumer cellular life?
1: There we go. Let's go with that. Okay. <laughs> so
0: You've now made charity, your post-consumer cellular life. And Meals on Wheels is the charity that probably most of our listeners, including myself, are most familiar with. But you also have the JTMF Foundation, Tell us a little bit, first of all, about your involvement with Meals on Wheels and the passion there, and then about the JTMF Foundation, what they mean to you. Where, what's the personal passion in this?
1: Yeah, well, with Meals on Wheels specifically, that was actually one of the organizations that our employees chose. When we hit a million customers back in 2013, we made a significant donation to them. And so that was our first kind of introduction. I think, like most of your listeners, I knew Meals on Wheels. You knew kind of what they do at a high level, and we certainly valued the, the work, but I, it was at that time that I started to really get to better know the organization and what they did. And I was fortunate enough to be asked to join the board in 2019, just in time for the pandemic to get started. And right now I serve on Meals on Wheels America's board, as well as am the treasurer for that board. What really drove me to Meals on Wheels as I learned more about them was the fact that they really, I think, are able to take a small amount of money and do tremendous things with that. They've got more than 5,000 local groups across the country. So there's effectively a Meals on Wheels organization in in every location that you can think of across America. And and with their team of volunteers, they're really able to have a tremendous impact on people. In fact, there's more than 9 million seniors that either are threatened or experiencing hunger every day. And less than 1% of philanthropy actually goes to support programs like Meals on Wheels that are helping seniors. So it was a group that was important to our employees, important to our customers, and important to to myself to get involved with to try and help make a difference.
0: Great. And the JTMF Foundation, that was born after Consumer Cellular? Tell me more about that, because that one is pretty targeted as well at certain parts of the country, but and certain types of charities, right?
1: Yeah, it was. So that was, you know, for my wife and I, as we were getting ready to exit Consumer Cellular and, and try and think about, you know, what's next for us in life, you know, continuing that philanthropy and the, the giving back was was something that was really important to us. And so what we did is take a, a big chunk of the proceeds from that sale and start the JT Myth Foundation, which is a, a family foundation. We focus on really four main areas, helping older individuals, early childhood development, veteran support services, and uh, support services for individuals with developmental disabilities. And those are all things that Again, we supported a Consumer Cellular, so it was really kind of continuing that legacy that we'd started, and then just being able to amplify it in our, our personal lives as we moved forward.
0: And what does JTMF stand for? <laughs>
1: well, it's actually John and Tammy Merrick Family Foundation.
0: Okay, got it. Got it. Okay, so at the end of the day, this is, this is an investing podcast, right? So a lot of times when we talk about charitable gifting in the investing space, we're talking about obviously giving money, put your money where your heart is and also get a tax benefit in return. What are some of the things that you think, aside from a tax benefit, and, and I, I know that you have a, a CPA that has a quote, something about not don't let the, the tax tail wag the dog, right? But it is a consideration, right? So so when you are giving money to a charity, to one of your own charities, or, or you're donating through your professional career when you were donating money, give me a sense for the benefits benefits personally, you know, there's obviously tax benefits, but the benefits personally that you saw, and then, you know, maybe what was the allotment of time between giving money and giving time? Because I think that's something too. I've given money to charities, right? Every year I give money to charities. There is a limited amount of satisfaction that I get. Maybe this is personal. There's a limited amount of satisfaction that I get from just writing a check, Right.
1: Sure, sure. Well, as you said, you know, if, if the only benefit you got from making a charitable donation was the tax benefit, then it would be kind of hard to, to justify that, right? You're not going to get as much back as you're putting in, but it's certainly a benefit. I think you know, probably the bigger benefit is, you know, both on a personal level, it just, you know, it makes you feel good, right? You're supporting causes that are near and dear to you that are important for one reason or another. And so there's, you know, that halo effect just in terms of it, it you know, it's something you should feel good about when you're helping organizations that are, are helping others. The other thing is, I think, you know, from an investing standpoint, if you look at your traditional investing, you're trying to generate returns, right? You're looking at financial returns as being the net outcome that you want. On the philanthropy side, you're still investing that in, in hopes of getting something, but rather than a financial return, it's the betterment of a cause. And again, if you think of Meals on Wheels as another great example, just because you know we're so close to that, it costs the same for Meals on Wheels to feed a senior for one year as one day in the hospital for that senior or 10 days in a nursing home. So when you think about the impact that that donation can have on society and the overall costs of taking care of a vulnerable population, it's much more efficient to help fund some of these really great nonprofit organizations that can get ahead of things and take care of people so that we're not having to incur costs as a society on the back end when things go terribly wrong. And so I think when you look at it from an (laughs) investing standpoint, that's, you know, rather than looking at, you know, what am I going to get financially out of this? It's how am I helping society and my communities to improve and get better?
0: So, If I am an investor and I'm looking for a charity to invest in, if you are thinking about donating money to a charity, make sure that you check out that charity first. You can look it up on the IRS website. Make sure it actually is a registered charity. You can look it up on things like Charity Navigator for feedback. You can look at the Better Business Bureau. So make sure you're vetting your charities before you're sending money blindly. That's something really important. But as someone who is running a foundation... What are some of the things that you do or that you would say people should look for when they're choosing where to send their money? So what what do you do to make your foundation an attractive recipient?
1: Yeah, well, I think that, the, you know, the important stuff really starts with the, the mission of the organization. And is it something that that you align with? Right. So especially as you're trying to there's going to be a lot of really worthy organizations to donate money to and finding something that you can be passionate about and a cause that is important to you is is certainly good. And then I think as you just start peeling back the onion, you know, we look at the leadership of that organization, the team, you know, do we feel like they're strong? Are they well run? You know, it's not unlike investing in a for-profit organization, all the things that are going to be important there, you know, how efficient are they with their money? When you look at the amount of money that they spend on marketing versus actually solving the problems that they're there to do, are they making a difference in their community? Those are the types of things that, are really important to us as we start evaluating organizations.
0: And then one of the last things I want to talk about is basically charitable organizations, just so everybody knows, when we, when we talk about the institutional side of the business, when we talk about institutional money. If you're an investor and, and you listen to media or you read articles, you've probably heard about smart money. A lot of times institutional money is referred to as smart money. They, it gets demonized at times, right? As a uh, large players that have some sort of advantage because they are such large players. However, keep in mind that a lot of charities also have foundations or endowments that are running money on behalf of that cause and and for the purpose of that cause. So these are nonprofits that are taking in donations. Well, those donations likely get invested in something along the way in order to be utilized for something down the road, in order to last longer, in order to take advantage of the growth that would occur along the way. So my question for you, John, is... Running a foundation and being on the board of something like Meals on Wheels, you likely hear about or are involved in investing that money. What does that look like for a charitable organization? How do you invest that money? What are the goals? What's the time horizon? What's the risk tolerance? Talk to us about what those decisions are like. And what I'm trying to get at here is, is it going to sound that much different than a for-profit investing objective?
1: Yeah, I think the short answer is no, it's not going to sound a lot different. I I think the nonprofits, uh, particularly a little bit more conservative, right? Um, But just like a for-profit or an individual, you're looking at, you know, what are my short-term cash needs? You know, how much money am I going to need in this one year and making sure that I've got that it's liquid and that it's safe and accessible. And then you have the pool of money um, that has a longer-term horizon where you're trying to generate a return. And the return and the benefit of that is that it allows you to further your cause, right? Continue to service your mission. You definitely want to try and generate a return. Um, I think in general, like I say, the nonprofits are going to be a little bit more conservative than a for-profit or an individual. As you kind of move down that spectrum, you know, like our, our private foundation, um, you know, we're required to, to give 5% of the, of the net assets on an annual basis in order to maintain our, our nonprofit status. And so if we want that, our balance to grow, we need to our investments to grow more than five percent. And so that's, you know, a little bit more aggressive than maybe you know, meals on wheels nonprofit would be. But we'd try and look in the say the seven to eight percent range. So five percent is going away and two and to three percent is helping to grow the overall funds to further our causes down the road that we're wanting to do. You know, and then on the individual level, it's it's kind of your personal risk tolerance, but you've got the freedom maybe to be a little bit more risky with that. So the end of the day very similar to you know what you'd see for just individuals
0: i'm imagining then you'd have to dig out of a hole like any investor would so for 2022 right you Mm -hmm. still had to donate five percent of your assets but your portfolio was probably down i imagine i don't know unless you've got some secret tell me (laughs) tell me your secret if your portfolio was up in 2022 So then you gotta dig out of that hole too, right? And, and that can take a while. And I, I don't even know that this is necessarily a question, but I think more just a proof point of even if you're running money for a nonprofit or for a charitable cause, You're a victim to the market, just like anybody else It can humble you just like anybody else. And you end up digging yourself out of the same holes. If you go through a tough year like 2022.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the trick, you know, with the the nonprofit world is that, you know, generally, they're on a much leaner budget, you know, probably, you know, for most of those, they don't have a big reserves to be able to lean on. And so while well, they're doing the same thing, right, they're trying to build those back up and, and get out of that hole. It just kind of shows even more the importance for people to find those organizations that are important to them and, and make some donations because they're, they're hurting just like everybody else.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's leave it on a positive note. Tell me about <laughs> the thing that you're most excited about in the charity space over the next 12 months.
1: You know, I think that what was really exciting, and this is kind of, you know, coming out of the pandemic you know, when the pandemic first started, I, like a lot of people thought, you know, everybody's going to hunker down. They're going to tighten their purse strings. They're not going to, you know, make any donations. And I think it was just the opposite, right? People saw the need and they said, you know, Hey, I'm going to help wherever I can. And so, you know, places like Meals on Wheels saw record contributions and, and, and even people willing to, to come out and volunteer their time when, you know, you were vulnerable and a lot of people were, you know, afraid to open their doors and walk out, right. People were stepping up to make a difference. And so I think that building on that momentum is is both, you know, the hope for the future as well as the challenge, right? We don't want people to say, oh, the pandemic's over. I no longer need to give or I can step away from personally donating my time and helping charities. So it's, it's really a great opportunity, I think, for people to kind of look at maybe what became important to them over these last few years and kind of double down on that. Find something that's important to you that you can believe in and that you want to help out with. And uh, step up, whether that's you know financial financial contributions, donations, or your time. Really, it's I think it's one of those situations where every little bit helps. And so, if you can find something that's important to you, that's going to help us as a society and um, and your neighbors.
0: Yeah, I agree. There there were a lot of a lot of charities actually that were sort of birthed out of the pandemic and. And then they became charities that started to support other crises that happened around the world that were, that were unrelated to the pandemic, right? They could have been natural disasters or whatever the case may be. And a lot of those are still going today. So, uh, maybe it's, it's a good thing. It restored our faith in humankind on some level. Uh, and the last thing I'll say to, to our listeners, if you're a younger investor and you, and you fall in that category of, somebody who wants to engage in what's called values-based investing and, and you want to feel good about where you're putting your money, think about charities as well. And and again, I understand that this is not something where you're going to put your money in a charity and expect a return. You're, you know, the charity is not charging you some kind of performance fee. Obviously this is different than an actual investment. But if you're looking at use of, of your funds and and places to put your funds that you feel good about rather than paying it all in taxes. This is something to consider. And as John said, every little bit counts. You do not have to be a billionaire in order to donate to charity. You do not have to be a rich person. You don't. You, it, there's no requirement, right? There's no requirement for entry. And I do think that it's a really good thing to consider because it does pay rewards back to you. Okay. Well, thank you very much, John. I appreciate it. I know our listeners appreciate it. And I hope that you have a wonderful tax season, if that is such a thing. That's an oxymoron, I think. But uh, I wish you a wonderful tax season and appreciate your time today.
1: Thanks very much. I enjoyed it, Liz.
0: Okay. So just to wrap that up, first of all... I think it was interesting to have somebody on to talk about charitable gifting. That's a unique take that I haven't done yet uh, on this podcast, but it is something that you have to consider as part of your overall financial well-being and especially in, as I mentioned, a values-based investing world. I think it's important to talk about, but some of the stuff that I found interesting, even aside from the charitable gifting piece of it, were his experience at Consumer Cellular through those three different crises and, and how different they were and and obviously the evolution of basically the mobile phone business and i think we have to think about that as we invest in new technologies and how the marketplace might change that was almost the definition of long term investing right if you think about how things started in the 90s and and the way that the industry had morphed by the time 2020 came around is if you can survive crises like that and live into an age where the commodity or the, the product that you're offering has now become something that every single person has and it's it's commoditized, that's really the long-term growth story. So something to always keep in mind and, and to remind us that we have to be patient as investors. I think the other part that was interesting is when we think about investing in companies is that this is a different era. And not only do people want to invest in things that make them feel good, but people want to work at companies that make them feel good. And it matters to have a company that puts not only their own money where their mouth is, but is engaged in causes that you care about. And And I think it's a time where you're going to find that more than maybe we did two or three decades ago. So I liked uh, the things that he said about recruiting, the things that he said about brand partnerships that it brought on for consumer cellular and just the involvement in the community that it added to the business. And even though that was a for-profit organization, obviously the engagement and not for profit is important too. And then lastly just investing a foundation. It's it's still just money. It's institutional money. And yeah, it's I guess it falls into the category of the smart money, but it's still just money that somebody's trying to make a return on and they're faced with some of the same requirements. They have bogeys that they have to hit in order to stay above water and they have required distributions that they have to make in order to remain uh, a charitable organization. So I thought it was really interesting, aside from you know, the fact that they're a little bit more conservative maybe than a bigger fund would be, and obviously they're not charging fees for performance. So there's not quite as much pressure on the performance side for them, but there certainly still is uh, a similar objective for the money. So anyway, thank you all for listening to that. Happy tax season to everybody. Donate responsibly, do your homework, and have patience as an investor as we navigate these choppy times. Thank you all, and I look forward to having the next episode out to you soon. For more from me, check out my weekly column on the markets and economy every Thursday morning on the SoFi blog at sofi.com/slash blog. And follow me on Twitter for daily takes on the market at Liz Youngstrap. The important part is produced by SoFi in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Sarah Lee Kane, our producer. Brian Rivers, our production manager, and Adam Rimonda, our editor and sound engineer. SoFi can't guarantee future financial performance and past performance is no guarantee. This podcast should be used for informational purposes only and not deemed as a recommendation. Our automated investing is via SoFi Wealth, LLC, and is a registered investment advisor. Our active investing is via SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. For additional disclosures related to the SoFi Invest platforms, please visit SoFi.com legal.